Since 1998, Stamps.com has been an indispensable tool for nearly 1 million businesses. Stamps.com brings the services of the U.S. Postal Service and UPS shipping right to your computer. Whether you're an office sending invoices, a side hustle podcast with giveaways to send out like mine, or a full-blown warehouse shipping out orders, Stamps.com will make your life easier. All you need is a computer and standard printer. No special supplies or equipment. Within minutes, you're up and running, printing official postage for any letter, any package, anywhere you want to send. And you'll get exclusive discounts on postage and shipping from USPS and UPS. Once your mail is ready, just schedule a pickup or drop it off. No traffic, no lines. Cut the confusion out of shipping. With Stamps.com's new Rate Advisor tool, you can compare shipping rates and timelines to easily find the best option. Save time and money with Stamps.com. There's no risk. And with my promo code POD, that's P-O-D, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in POD. That's Stamps.com promo code POD. Never go to the post office again. I'm Lori Lee Binstock, and you're listening to a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast. One of my guests once told me that your breakdown will become your breakthrough. Sometimes it takes losing it all to get everything you actually need. My guest today is retired NHL center David Scatchard, who is best known for his time with Vancouver Canucks and the New York Islanders. He may have been seen as the underdog, but his drive to overcome obstacles helped him achieve his childhood dream of becoming an NHL player at the age of 21. After his fifth concussion, however, everything changed for him. Dave is also the author of The Comeback, which details his journey to find himself and true freedom. Dave joins me today to talk about his book and his journey of self-discovery. Dave, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Laura Lee. Happy to be here. Well, you've had a successful 14 years playing NHL hockey, a dream I can only imagine that many people have but not so many people actually have the opportunity to achieve can you tell me how it all started yeah it's kind of crazy to think that this little kid from a small town with a coal miner dad and a stay-at-home mom could play in a league where only 723 people in the world get to play every year it was always my lifelong dream i grew up in the freezing prairies of alberta and british columbia canada In Alberta, everything was frozen and it would be so cold that the whole pond would freeze to the point where parents could drive their vehicles out onto the ice and have like tailgating parties and stuff. And then they'd (laughs) shovel off the, they'd shovel off the ponds and then put skates on the kids and just everyone would just have fun all afternoon. There's no rules. There's no but he teaching you really You just kind of like stumbled around out there. And, and that started with me at like two or three years old like skating and then uh, eventually I think my mom got me to lessons around four or five and I started playing on a team at the age of six and uh, you know it was a blue collar town Uh, there's a pulp mill and a coal mine and only a few thousand people there but we seemed to be able to get on the ice quite a bit once we got into hockey so I think those extra ice sessions and playing street hockey every day and as you read in the book all these crazy 
crazy ideas that I had as a kid <laughs> where I thought if I wore ankle weights everywhere, my legs would get strong. <laughs> so I'd be in the NHL. So that's what I asked for Christmas. I think is on like my ninth, eighth or ninth Christmas. Like, I don't know how many nine-year-olds ask for ankle weights <laughs> for Christmas and are stoked yeah. to get them. I remember, <laughs> I remember opening them up underneath the Christmas tree and the night we were allowed to open one gift the night before and I opened those ankle weights and they were like, it was hilarious. I thought they were the greatest gift ever. So I'm in my pajamas. I put on my ankle weights and I seriously don't take them off for like four or five days. My mom's like, Dave, you got to take those. Like, this is ridiculous. And I wore them to bed. <laughs> but I thought it would help me. So I did it. I mean, obviously it did. I guess. Right. <laughs> right. You, you knew you knew what you needed. Right. Uh, I, I, I seriously, at a young age, my dad asked me so many great questions. And he said, um, uh, he said, Dave, um, what do you think you're going to have to do to make it? Because only at the time, there was less than 700 people that would get to play. And he said, what are the, some things that you think you would have to do to become like them? And obviously, there were so many. I was the skinniest kid you've ever seen. I was kind of weak. My shot wasn't great. I, I, you know, so I started focusing. So if I shot a hundred pucks every day, if I, I bought these rollerblades when rollerblades weren't a thing, I was like one of the first guys to own rollerblades. So I'd race the school bus. And there's a funny story in the book about it. I'm racing the school bus to school every single day. And at the beginning, the school bus would kick my butt. And then it's like a movie, right? The kids are yelling out the window and I'm racing <laughs> down the road. And then you get way far ahead and I'd have to stop and pick up the other kids. And I go zipping by and everyone would cheer. And then, so wow. yeah, I had to, I had to ride a few miles to school every day with my little backpack on. And this is how cold it was. I had my Scooby-Doo lunchbox. I'm standing at the bus stop before I got the rollerblades. And I had a warm thermos with some soup in it or something. And it was so cold and so brittle that the plastic of the Scooby-Doo lunchbox just cracked in the warmth of the thermos. And it just, my whole lunchbox just fell apart. <laughs> like, uh. That's how cold the prairies were. So um, there wasn't a lot other to do. I couldn't really play football and stuff because it was frozen half, you know, mo more than half the year. So we played hockey. And um, since I was like preschool, I was drawing pictures of little hockey guys. Like I'd want to be a hockey player when I grew up and other kids would do firemen and policemen and stuff like that. Like, so it's been all I've ever wanted my whole life. And like, my focus was so directed at that, that I really think that it, it kept me going when everyone told me it's impossible. Wow. And so <clears throat> the age of 21 happens and you are an NHL hockey player. What was that like? Yeah, well, getting there, you know, I think there's, it's important that I share a few tipping points. There was a time when I was 16 and I call home and I had to move away from home to play hockey to get better competition. So I move away from home. I'm playing with kids that are like up to 20 years old and I'm 16 and, and, and I'd always been the big dog and the big fish in the little pond. And now I'm playing against these like men and they're not making my life easy. They're kind of, it's kind of bullying. I'm mentally a little bit soft because I'd always had my dad as my coach and like really positive and everybody, nobody lies or nobody like, and like every, like I lived in a bubble and now I'm mm -hmm. 16 years old. I'm out in the real world. It's, it's ruthless. Guys are like, 
picking on me and making my life hard because they were jealous that I was this up and coming kid. And I remember calling my mom and dad and said, I don't know if I can handle this. I live with a billet family. They don't know how to cook for a teenager. I'm starving all the time. Mm. And I said, mom, I think I want to come home. And she, and it was like this tipping point in my life. And I'll, I'll just share a couple of these really quick. Um, this one, I wanted to come home. I was so homesick. I miss my mom. I miss my dad. I miss my brother and sister. I missed all my friends. And my mom said, Hey, your bed's still here. You can come back if you want, but I think you're going to regret it if you don't um, stick it out. Cause this, this is what you want. Like just, you got to just keep going. Like even when it gets sticky, you got to just keep going. So, so I decided to stick it out. And that day I made a resolve, a thousand percent resolve that I'm all in on this whole hockey thing. And I don't care how much psychological abuse I take. I don't care what happens to my body. I don't care how hard I have to train, how disciplined I have to be. I was like a thousand percent all in. And my, my play instantly improved. And I just stayed at the rink and worked and worked and worked. The next year I made Portland Winterhawks, which is a major junior team. And we were having a, uh, this skate at the end of one of our sessions to start the year. I didn't realize it, but I was on the bubble. Like I, I was possibly going back home and they skated us until we were throwing up and it was the hardest skate I've ever done. And it's a really long story. It's in the book. I, I don't want to give it all away, but mm -hmm. that point, I didn't know that all the coaching staff, all the scouts, anybody who could make a decision on our future was up in the stands watching. And it was secret. They were like, it was like the Marines. They were trying to like break us. Right. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to see who would quit first. And there was something in me that just said, like, just keep going and, and, don't slow down for anybody because these guys were wanting us all to like pace ourselves and like fall in line and stuff. And I'm like, no, like I just got to go. And the next day, three of those guys were gone. We're never to be seen again, never made the NHL, just like yeah. gone. And that could have been me if I took my foot off the gas. So 21 years old, I start the season after four heel surgeries that I had, and I never knew if I was going to play hockey again. That's a total miracle in its own self. Uh, and I know this, this has trauma in the show. So I'll share this story. So I had hollow heels. They found them on x-rays and I was 20. I was in the minor leagues. I was playing really good, but my feet kept feeling like they were spraining. So they did these x-rays on my feet and they're like, okay, Dave, this is really weird, but your feet are hollow. Like if you fall into the boards, your ankles could just shatter. Oh my goodness. So we got to cancel your season, fly you to Vancouver. I was in Syracuse, New York fly to Vancouver where the Canucks were playing and get surgeries there. They do both surgeries on both ankles. I can't physically walk, but they didn't want to put casts on um, or wheelchair because of atrophy. So they just left me in, in these heavy, heavy bandages. And I would crawl to the bathroom. I'd use the bathroom. I'd give the bellman my room key. I was in so much pain and he'd just bring me food. So I ordered room service and he'd bring it to my bed and I'd eat it and then he'd leave. And then I'd do that like three times a day. I'd go sit in the hyperbaric chamber when I could finally put a little bit of weight on my left foot and I was in crutches and I couldn't skate. I couldn't exercise. I could work upper body. So I kept training that, but my feet were so mangled. And then around June and training camp starts in September 
they go, let's just see how this surgeries went. So they go and do x-rays and they're like, Dave, we're so sorry, but we made a mistake and we got to do it all over again. And I'm like, oh my God. What? So they only filled in half of the bone. It was a hole like this, but there's a little partition. So they shoved it full of bone. And at first they took bone off my hip. And then the second part was they, they, um, they ground up donor bone from a lady cadaver and stuck it in my heels. So this is where I'm like in my hotel room, I'm crying, I'm praying to God. I'm like, God, if you get me through this, I swear, I'll, and I didn't grow up in the church or anything, but I was just desperate. And I'm like, I swear, I'll be a good person. I'll do whatever. We've all said this one, right? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, I can't even put my skates on until about 10 days before training camp. And I say to the scout, I said, what do I got to do to make this team? And he goes, Dave, we have Mark Messier. We have Pavel Burry, Alexander McGillian. We have all these superstars to score goals, but we need somebody to play really physical and draw penalties and things like that. So I said, okay. So I went out in training camp. I fought everybody I could. I, like uh, my feet were still kind of mangled, but I was like playing pretty decent. And the next thing you know, I'm on a plane to start the season in Japan. It was the first hockey game ever in Japan. So, oh. so I'm room, Mark Messier, my idol growing up. He's my roommate, which is super cool. <laughs> and, and once again, it's like my Portland story. I was kind of on the outside looking in. They, they're allowed to take a couple extra people to Japan before trimming the roster all the way for the, for the, for the start of the season when we got back in case there are injuries. And just a miracle, one of the guys, um, calves got sliced by a skate in practice. And all of a sudden they had to use me. So they put me in the lineup. And I remember jumping on the ice for my first NHL game after focusing my entire existence and being on making it to the NHL. And I'm like, holy smokes, like I'm in an NHL game. This is like crazy. <laughs> and I remember wow. the, the fans in Japan, there was, they built a, a hockey arena over a swimming pool. And there were high diving boards behind one of the nets. <laughs> and they were like, <laughs> I don't know how many people, 16,000 people or something uh, in the Yoyogi arena. And they didn't know who to cheer for because they're from Japan. So they just cheered for both teams and they just mm. loved like physical play. So I remember coming off the ice and I said, nobody can ever take it away from me. I, I played a game in the NHL. And that was the beginning of a 14 year crazy journey that uh, was some of the greatest times of my life, really. Incredible. Well, with such success that a demanding, I guess you could say it's your job, your career, you know, it it took a lot of your time and took a beating, obviously, to your body. How did that affect you in your personal life? Well, in the book, I share a lot about... um, there's, there's like a whole page and I do, I have a coaching business now and I do life and business coaching. So a lot of my clients have read the book and they're like, Dave, we knew that you were like smart and that you're a leader and that you're tuned in and all this stuff. We didn't know like what you, what you went through. So because, because of the name of, of your podcast, I'll, I'll share some of the injuries just to start. Um, I've had five concussions, uh, I'm bleeding in my brain, micro hemorrhaging mm-hmm. my brain. Um, we had broken our orbital bone in our face. My teeth have been knocked out. 
um, broken my knuckles, broken my thumb, surgery on my thumb, broken forearm, two MCL tears on both knees, four surgeries on my heels, three surgeries on my shoulder, six broken ribs, uh, multiple broken bones in my feet. And uh, obviously, there, there will be things that I'm forgetting right now. But this was just the way it was like you would break stuff and you just keep playing because you didn't want somebody to take your job. And oftentimes I remember, I remember I got called up from the minors near the second half of my career. And uh, I wasn't in the minors very much until the end of my career when I made a comeback after my fourth concussion, but I broke my ribs in the minors and then I get called up to Nashville. And the first day in Nashville, they're doing like fitness, like testing kind of, and we're having to do pull-ups. And I remember I'm with broken ribs and I don't want anybody to know my ribs are broken. Yeah, I'm doing yeah. pull-ups and it's just like a knife stuck in the side of my body. And I just, I had like, I seriously had tears in my eyes as I'm doing the pull-ups and I banged out like 13 or 14 wide oh grip, wide grip pull-ups with broken ribs. And I'd like turn and I turn my back to the group, hoping nobody's like seeing how much pain I'm in. And then I play, I don't know how many games, like, 10, eight games, 10 games, something like that. I'm there for like a month. And at the end of it, the pain's so bad. I'm like, I gotta make sure that something weird is not going on. And I go into the doctor. She's like, yeah, you've got three broken ribs over here. Did you know that? And I'm like, well, yeah. <laughs> she goes, I can't believe I haven't seen you sooner. But then the problem is as soon as I said I had broken ribs, then they're like bringing another player and then, as soon as they thought that I was okay, they sent me back to the minors and that's kind of how pro sports is. So yeah, we've had, we've had, we've had trauma that is beyond normal trauma. And when the head stuff started to happen, it made me kind of crazy. And uh, I had such debilitating migraines. I just couldn't, I couldn't function. I couldn't be in bright light. I couldn't be around loud noises. I would go hide in my movie theater and just like be in the dark. I disconnected from everyone, everything. I didn't want people to see me at the end of my career, just broken. And, um, you know, that's when things get really scary is when you disconnect from everyone yeah. and you don't really tell the truth about what's going on. So as a coach now, life and business coach, I really focus on people just like kind of like being brutally honest and telling, telling, getting naked and not trying to be tough and not trying to pretend that nothing's going on. I, I want to coach them through it when we're being honest and saying, where are we really at? You know, and then at least we're dealing in reality and we can like move forward from there and get out of the pit. So you know, we can, we can take this wherever you want to go. But one of the lessons that I learned is that the suffering that I went through, and it was dark for three years, like really dark. Um, I went to the Mayo Clinic three days a week, did all the protocols. And then they left me at the end of three years. And when I say left me, it was just like, they just said, we've done everything we can that we don't have anything else we can do for you. So you're just going to have permanent disabilities. I was on Alzheimer's medicine, like 36 years old. I'm, I'm taking Alzheimer's medicine. I would go pick it up. And the lady at the pharmacy would be like, is this for your grandfather or your, and I'm like, no, this is, this is for me. 
I would forget where I put my kids if my wife left. I, I was in the swimming pool one day with two of my kids and I forgot that I put the little guy in a timeout for like a minute because he punched his brother in the face. And I totally forgot about him. So my wife comes home. She's like, where's Sawyer? I'm like, oh my goodness. Like I had I no, I, I didn't even know I had a third kid. It's like, what? Wow. So anyways, she goes to the crib and he's sound asleep and whatever. And it was fine, but it scared the crap out of me. Mm-hmm. You know, I was doing a renovation on a property, huge renovation. And I write an $80,000 check to the guy that just fixed my waterfalls, my koi pond and everything. And I give him a check and he goes, hey, you paid me yesterday. I'm like, oh, okay, thanks. Mm-hmm. You know how scary, <laughs> and I'm like 36. So I'm like, I'm going to go the rest of my life like this. And it got really dark and I started thinking crazy thoughts and I don't even really want to even get into it because it scares me to think that it got that scary for me that I thought checking out would be a better option than like trying to fight, fight through it. Yeah. So that's probably why where I'm on this podcast and why we found each other is because there's somebody out there that should hear some of this or all of it. And that's my mission right now. My whole mission after the injuries and the near death experience and, and everything um, is to help people out of suffering and to show them that they don't have to stay in the pit, that there's a way out. And, um, you know, God's blessed me with an incredible life and, everything that I ever want now for me it's all about like showing up for people and helping them because now God had to put me in that hole and I thought he's punishing me for some reason I'm like why why aren't you showing up I know you're real I saw you and the message back to me later was I'm so sorry that you had to suffer that darkly but in order for you to understand depression or fear or anxiety or hopelessness, you needed to live there because the people that you're going to help are going to be coming from places like that. So I was almost getting like trained in like understanding the darkness in a way that I didn't, when I was on, on my road to the NHL, I was super positive. Everything's just like, right. And I didn't really have compassion. I didn't really, understand if somebody said they were sad or depressed like i'm like no like let's be fine let's go like switch up change your state (laughs) well well, well, sometimes you can't change your state when like your circumstances are so crazy that like nothing makes sense to you so then when nothing makes sense you're like oh my god what's wrong with me you know and then i started feeling like i was a burden to other people like my wife like i'm like okay here's this beautiful my wife is a model in New York and now she's raising these three kids. And like, I can't even help them learn how to ride a bike because running beside the bike makes me sick the way that my head was. I couldn't mm-hmm. push them on a swing set. I couldn't bounce on a trampoline. Like I was just a mess. So then I felt like I was a burden to her. And like, that's not the case at all, but like our mind starts playing tricks on us when we're going through those dark times where it makes you think like irrational thoughts or have this weird self-talk that's not even, you don't even know where it's coming from. Does that make sense? A hundred percent. It's these stories that you tell yourself Yeah. because you're struggling. You assume that everyone else is looking at you the way you're looking at yourself at that moment. I absolutely understand. And so all of this went down after your fifth concussion, right? 
Yeah. And this was this was severe. Yeah. And obviously you were you were saying you're on Alzheimer medication. Yeah. How did you get through that? I almost didn't, to be honest with you. And I remember sitting in inside inside my truck uh, on the way home from the Mayo Clinic. And they gave me that diagnosis. Now think about it. These are the smartest doctors in the whole world. They're at the Mayo Clinic. They're not, they're not, not good doctors. They've done thousands of brain treatments. They've seen thousands of concussions. They know what the symptoms are, what the patterns are. So when they're telling you, this is just kind of how you're going to be for the rest of your life. And I'm like, I can't live another 60, 70 years like this. There's no way. Right? I was in so much pain. My, my headaches were so bad that like it, they never stopped. So first, I just, uh, I could have accepted that diagnosis. I, I could still be the, that guy that's hanging on by a thread, sitting in my movie theater, feeling sorry for myself. But I just kept believing that I was going to heal. And I'm like, you know what? There's, this can't stay like this forever. I just don't believe that's true. So I'm like, what else can I do? Well, I can change my diet. What else can I do? I can get around people that are doing like epic things and hopefully catch on and ride their coattails for a while. What else can I do? I just need to go and find people, healers. Um, like this is I like, so because of that $80,000 mistake, when I wrote the check to the contractor for the second time, <laughs> I said, I better get a life coach or something to like make, watch my back. Cause I worked so hard to make the money that I made. I didn't want to do one move and screw up something. And so I had five properties in three countries. They're all luxury properties. They were all rented. I was so confused. I didn't know what was going on. So I had, I hired a coach and I'm like, okay, let's consolidate. Let's bring everything in just to simplify my life. And then he suggested, he goes, well, what would you like to do if you could do anything with work? Cause I couldn't work. And I said, I like to help people out of suffering. I like to help kids. He goes, well, I think you should go to this leadership academy in San Diego. They teach a lot of like coaching skills and psychology stuff and da, 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 da. I said, I'll try anything. So, you know, I invest $10,000 in that coach. Then I go and I sign up for this leadership academy. I drive from Phoenix to San Diego, which is a six hour drive. I have to pull over two or three times to sleep because it's like overwhelming for my senses to be like doing this. It's so funny. It's not funny. It was scary because like that's how weak I was. And then mm -hmm. I remember this is, and I, I hate to admit it, but I was like, I was like cursing God in a way. And I'm just like, why are you punishing me? Like, I don't understand this. Like if I don't have a miracle this weekend, I don't think I can keep going. And, um, I was basically challenging God for a miracle. So I go down to San Diego and they start doing this whole process. Uh, like it was, it was a magical weekend, but Tony doesn't even show up to that event. Tony Robbins doesn't even show up. So other people are training. So I was kind of disappointed in that. But at first the loud noises and the music and people jumping around, it just made me like, I would go outside and just cry on the street because I couldn't be in the room. But slowly I became so absorbed into the teaching that I knew I was in the right place. And the first miracle that I had was when we were doing this version where we go and visit the purest version of our soul, right? And I saw myself as this little five-year-old boy 
wearing a Superman cape. Here, actually, I got a special surprise for you. <laughs> so I have, I have a five-year-old boy wearing the Superman cape at a campground. And I was just pure, like so pure. I just loved animals. I loved people. And I was just so trusting. And like, I hadn't really been hurt or yelled at or bullied or, or had my heart broke, like nothing. I was just this little angel. And I was really soft and free. And then I fast forwarded to where I was this hockey player with, you know, millions of dollars in the bank, my wife, my kids, and me not wanting to be here. And I was like, what's wrong with this picture? And like, where's the little guy in the gladiator, Dave, the hockey Dave? Like, where is he? Because I couldn't even see a glimmer of him. And I would go back and forth and I was trying to find him. And finally, I did this process where we removed all this armor and all these masks. And think about it, Lurley, like every time we take a shot, we kind of armor up and we're like, whoa, mm -hmm. what, what was that? that? That scared the crap out of me. Like, I don't want that. Or you get your heart broken. You're like, well, I'm not going to really give myself to anybody else because they just rip my heart out. You know, right. I'm homesick. So I'm just going to get tough. Like, I'm just going to get tough and I'm going to block it all. And that's kind of what I did for 30 years as a hockey player is I just got tougher and tougher. And I could run through this wall and not feel a thing. But I couldn't feel a thing. I couldn't feel it. I, I was like numb. I was like a, I was a killer, but I was like, like, and part of my job in hockey was fighting. So like I had to like not let little David do that. I had to turn into this gladiator guy, but I lost him. So I'm removing the army, removing the mask, removing the armor, removing the mask. And I finally get down to like the purest version of my soul. And I'm like, oh my God, there he is. And I reached down and I was like holding little David, like a five-year-old and just telling him, I'm so sorry for hurting him by covering him up because he's the way that I was designed and the way that I was made, but he couldn't go do what we just did for the last 20 years. It was just too violent and it was too crazy. So I do that. And after I ripped off the last layer of armor, it was like all the healing, all the love, all the grace, all the feeling of God protecting me just poured over me like a waterfall. And I remember just sitting at the back, just crying because I knew I was going to heal that day. And it was like, once I got out of the survival mode and freed into that little joyful boy without being covered up in armor, I just got flooded with like grace and love and light. And I knew I was going to heal that day. And that's when I went and I brushed my teeth that night. And God was talking to me through my own eyes in the mirror, telling me that he was sorry that he had to make me suffer like that but that I needed to understand those things and those places to be able to help people. Mm -hmm. So one more thing. So I come home from this event and it was before Christmas. My grandma came for Christmas. She's 90 something. Her last flight that she has made, she's never been down to Arizona ever since she's from Canada. And I opened up all my Christmas presents under the tree. And there's one little one and everyone's like, Oh, I didn't have a name on it. And grandma, my grandma bear, she goes, Oh, David, that's yours. I said, she goes, what do you get a boy that has everything? And I said, I don't know, grandma, let me open it. And I opened it up. But I never told my wife about the Superman thing. I never told anybody about it. And this is a picture that she sent me. Wow. Was that it's crazy or what? Just, wow. So for the listeners, there's a picture of my little purest version of myself, my five-year-old soul. 
And it was like the universe or God was just reminding me, yes, stay here. So I've let that little guy lead me ever since. And I felt so naked and so vulnerable because my armor was off, right? And I thought people were going to judge me or make fun of me, and especially telling my near-death experience and stuff. Like I was scared to do it, but it's like, um, that's the truth. That's the way, that's the light. And this little guy is the light. And I just have to trust, like, what would he do? How would he show up for people? How would he show up in this world? Would he show up like free and joyful and silly and playful? Or would he show up as this gladiator that's just, you know, and I'm not hating the gladiator. There are parts of the gladiator that were amazing. The discipline, the focus, the commitment, those things are great. I, I don't want to throw those away, but there are also heavy parts like of the gladiator that I don't need anymore. So yeah, um, that's when the healing started is when I really took off some of the armor that I've been wearing for so long and so many years. And it was so light, like I felt so light and so free after like taking off all the masks and all the armor. It was amazing. Wow. That is an incredible story. So incredible. And you know, you're right. Yes. That, that, that armor was, it was, it was a heavy, it was really heavy, but it's, it kind of got you where you are. Like you said, God was there to tell you, you need to, you needed to experience this. It's how you gain your compassion and your empathy and your ability to help others efficiently. Um, so I think that's incredible. You wrote the book, um, the comeback. Can you talk about finding true freedom? Can you tell me a little bit about that? What is, what does it mean to find true freedom? True freedom is when you're comfortable in your own skin, the way that you were designed and you're living an aligned, authentic life where you don't have to do anything. You just have to show up and be the light that you feel when you're aligned. You're not encumbered by rules or by programming about how somebody told you that you must be. Laura a good girl would never do that or say that or be this way. Dave, a good boy would never do that. As we get, as we grow up, we sort of get a blueprint of the rules of life from somebody, from a parent, from a teacher, from a principal, from a pastor, from a coach, whatever, right? And we take that as fact because we're little. Right. Respect your elders, listen to your elders. So my dad told me things about making money. So I took those as fact. He worked in the coal mines. So you got to work really hard and you got to like come home covered in dirt and like that's how you make money. Well, I proved that wrong. I believe hard work is absolutely essential, but I believe that I've met so many and I coach so many millionaires and really wealthy people. Like they just think differently and outside the box and they don't play by the same rules as the rest of the people. That's why they're successful. Same thing with the healing. If I would have just stayed within the confines of going to the hospital, taking my Adderall, my Ambien, my, my Vicodin, whatever the hell they were giving me to numb the pain and oh, it's terrible. But instead, I went and I found healers and monks and shaman and grandmasters, Tony Rao, all these crazy people, because <laughs> I was looking for some other way of healing, right? Some other right. way of being. 
most of the good things that I've discovered have been outside of the box that I was given as a blueprint for my life. Right. I'll repeat that. Most of the great things that I found or discovered were outside of the box that somebody else gave me for the blueprint for my life. I should write that down. That's quotable. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. But nothing great comes in certainty. Nothing great comes unless there's a stretch or instability brought into your system or your field. Sometimes that trauma can, can break you free from this old pattern that you were in and move you into a new alignment. And that's really what I believe happened to me. I could stay there and be sad and say, well, I could have made all this money if I played a few more years and da, 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 da. Or I can look at it and say, you know what? That injury was the greatest thing that ever happened to me because it moved me into this path of coaching. I've never felt more fulfilled and more happy in my life. And I believe that the hockey was great, but it was more to give me a stage to speak from now than just be a hockey player. Absolutely. And there are too many people that haven't heard my message or don't know how to get out of this thing that they're stuck in that I can help them with because I was there. I lived it. I get it a hundred percent. And it's very rarely, I've had the highest of highs. I've been in the best league in the world, playing with the best people in the world, making lots of money and having lots of people know who I was to losing it all. Like as far as the capacity to perform, the capacity to live a normal life and having to rebuild it from scratch from the darkest of dark all the way back up and now I'm at the top again. And it's like, I've done it in multiple businesses in multiple areas of my life multiple times. So what better way to like be able to coach people on is you're like, yeah, but I've been there. Like I totally know where you're at and don't quit because you can, you can get through this. I did it. Like, that's why I was given that gift of living there. Cause now I can say, Hey, it's okay. Like, listen, it's okay. And this is probably what's going to happen next. And we can kind of call it out. I draw this whole map out called the champion's map. And it has to do with like sliding down the tunnel of hell into the pit and then being in the pit and you can't get out of the pit, circling back up to existence where so many of you live just in existence. They don't thrive. They just kind of like get by and, and it's kind of average and they play by all the rules and they, they list, they just try to fit in with the Joneses. And then there's the champion's ladder. And then there's, the level of champion all-star in the big life. And at that level, the rules change. Like Michael Jordan's rules about how basketball is played is different than everyone else's. You look at the best of the best, they almost design and make up their own rules of how life is going to be. And then they show up in their best version of themselves and they live there in that space. Have you ever met those people that like it's just always working for them and they're always like winning? You're like, how's this guy do this all the time? This is what I study. This is what my life is consumed by is like, how can we live there? And you don't just go into the zone once in a blue moon. We've all had these beautiful zone moments where you're like, oh, that mm -hmm. game that I played was incredible or this date I was on or this one moment in time. My true belief is that when you're in alignment, you get to live there like way more than just once in a while. And the ultimate goal is to get to live in that sweet spot. I call it like swimming with the current instead of against it. I don't believe that we are designed to grind out an effort this life. I believe that we are meant to find our slipstream, get into alignment with it, serve as many people as possible, 
and have fun while we're doing it and be a free little boy that just loves life. If anybody knows me, I'm a six foot three, 223 pounds. And like, I'm a goofball. I'm silly. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I don't take it too seriously because I tried that. It's hard being serious all the time. It takes effort. Yeah. So why don't we just take the armor off and just be silly and goofy and who cares what people think? That's, that's another thing is I believe our society today has been just programmed to think that what other people think about us really matters and holds weight when if your mission's big enough, you don't care. You don't, you lose yourself in it. Meaning if I come on this podcast, I'm worried about if people judge me or judge my story. It doesn't matter. I'm not in the equation. There's somebody out there that's supposed to hear this message right now that I have to show up for. I don't have a choice in the matter. Just like you don't. You're doing great things. I'm proud of you. You know? Wow. Thank you. Well, you're doing incredible work and there are a lot of people who need to hear your story. Um, Is there anything else that you would like to add? You know, there's a saying, like, if you're going through hell, just keep going. Um, Like, don't stop. And when you get some momentum, like, put the hammer down. Like, keep the momentum going. Because when you lose your momentum, it takes a long time to get it kind of back cooking again. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm all about little wins. Give me a few little wins and I can build off of that. And then, then we put the hammer down and we get the big wins, you know little steps um this is one thing that i teach and i heard uh keith cunningham who was actually the original rich dad from rich dad poor dad the book and i met keith um through one of tony's things and keith said if if i asked you to throw this empty soda can five miles down the road in one throw would you be able to do it and the answer is no well what if i crumpled up this soda can on the on the street and i asked you could you kick this five miles down the road yeah i I could probably do that it might take a while but i could do it a lot of us in our life with amazon prime and mcdonald's and stuff we can have stuff instantaneously and people want that for their life but the reality is sometimes you got to just kick the can Right. If you're trying to get better, if you're trying to save your marriage, if you're trying to save your money or make money, if you're trying to like launch a program, write a book, all these things, like don't get discouraged if it's not happening on your timeline. Sometimes there's other factors involved. Right. My book took 10 years for me to actually get from like start to finish. It took me five years of actually writing it, but it's out, it's done. And and to be honest with you, if it would have came out before, it wouldn't have the impact that it's about to have right now, right? And the timing of it wasn't my timing. (laughs) This is the universe's timing, it was God's timing. So keep kicking the can. Like when I'm working on a project or whatever, I'll tell myself done beats perfect and keep kicking the can. And that gets me through like almost everything. Just get it done. It's not gonna be perfect, you can tweak it later. So just keep kicking the can. Don't stop. Don't stop believing in yourself. Don't ever give up. If you don't ever give up, you're going to make progress. You're going to move forward. If you give up all the momentum that you just built, you get, you lose it and you have to start all over again. So just keep going and know that there's a plan. I don't know how to explain it, but 
The time I got traded, and I put this in the book, the time I got traded from Vancouver to New York, the owner was in the jail. I went from Vancouver, which is like first class, to like Islanders who are just a disaster. <laughs> and I'm like, why am I here? What's the point of me being here? Well, it turned out that those ended up being my best hockey years. I got the most ice time. I scored the most goals. And then I met my future wife in Manhattan. So like all that had to happen. But when it was, when I was going through it, I'm like, this sucks. Like, why do I have to go here? Like what's going on? My head, my feet, my mono that I had before the draft. Like I, <laughs> all these things are in the book is where like, when I add them up, there's probably like 20 moments in my life where like, I should have probably stopped or, or I should have realized if I had a rational brain or listened to anybody that said, Dave, you're not going to make the NHL. It's impossible. A rational brain would have said, you know what, guys, you're right. Like, it's like one in millions. But irrationally, I was like, they don't know what's inside of me. They have no idea what I'm, what my vision is. It's my vision. It's not their vision. So it's okay if they don't understand me. It's okay if they don't get me. I love it because I've been given such a clear vision. I just have to act on it and trust. And like, that's having faith, faith in the universe, faith in God, whatever you believe in is is wonderful but having faith and believing that you're built for more and you need to show up and even a lot of times we'll do more for other people than we will for our own selves so what if we just did more to serve more people but in the end we actually get blessed because we've been blessing so many people yeah wow well, thank you so much for, for joining me on my podcast. I, I absolutely loved your message. I, I think it's, it's beautiful what you're doing. Congratulations with, with the amazing work that you've been doing, that you are doing, that you will be doing. And it's incredible. Uh, well, thank you so much. And um, what I'm going to do is uh, for all your listeners out there, I'm going to share a few links uh, with you that you can share with them. Uh, and, uh, you can find the book on Amazon. Um, by the time this drops, there should actually be a book offer that we include as well. Uh, we've got a live event in December. That's going to be unbelievable. I'm bringing in some of the coaches and healers that helped me in my life. And I'm bringing them on stage with me. So we're gonna have a, a thousand people there. That's gonna be really amazing. And then, um, we have some free webinars and challenges for people. So they don't have to pay me money, but they can get a lot of the benefit. I don't really hold much back. So my one-on-one -on -one clients who pay me a lot of money, um, you're going to get access to a lot of that information that I give them. And that's all free and included. And I just want to do that because I know if you're listening to this podcast that you're going through something or you have gone through something. And if this can be a little bit of light in the middle of the darkness, that's it. Like, one of my mentors, Donnie Epstein says, there's no, there's no such thing as darkness. There's just an absence of light. And I thought that's such a cool uh, quote because it's true. Yeah. So if we can all show up, be our little best versions of ourselves, be the light and show up and serve other people. A lot of times it helps us get out of our own stuff too. So Agreed. I feel like, yeah, that's, it's finding your purpose. Yeah. Amen. 
Well, thank you. That was Dave Scatchard, retired NHL player, founder of All-Star Coaching and author of The Comeback. To learn more about Dave, visit my website at tstpodcast.com. That's the letter A, tstpodcast.com. There you can find the link to purchase his book. You can also find my social media platforms at the top of my homepage. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to my email list to get Authentic Insider Magazine in your inbox monthly. And don't forget to check the show notes for all of the great offers that Dave is offering. Please stay tuned and thank you so much for being a part of the conversation. You've been listening to a Trauma Survivor Thrivers podcast. I'm Lori Lee Binstock. Take care. Mm-hmm.